Michaela Lieberman. And I'm Jeff Bellin. Welcome to Office Hours. So today on the podcast, we've got the three amigos from the CLCT, the Center for Legal and Court Technology. That's right. Maybe, is that what it's called? As I fondly call them, the Geek Squad. Okay, the Geek Squad is what you call them. Is what I, <laughs> yeah. I just yeah. realized that I don't want to be on record saying that. Right. Uh, I find they were all wonderful. Amazing. Uh, so we got so smart, so cool. Yeah. So we got Fred Letterer, who's a professor who teaches some of the same stuff that I teach. So yeah. I uh, talk Go ahead, to tell Fred him. a lot. I like evidence. It. Oh, evidence. Criminal, Criminal procedure. procedure. Yeah. Uh, we have Iria Giafrida, who's right. a visiting professor. Um, also an LLM, an alumna of William & Mary Law School. Right. And Nicholas Vermees. That's right. Who's from Montreal. That's right. And a visiting right. professor. He's a professor up in Montreal, visiting here at William & Mary. Yep. So just a, a kind of world of knowledge. That's right. A world of knowledge, and it opened up a world of new information for me. Um, mostly scary. I yeah. don't know how I'm going to sleep <laughs> at night ever. Yeah. Yeah, well, it was funny because we didn't really know mm-hmm. what to expect with this podcast. Be- yeah. Because we, you know, we Come don't. On. Yeah, right. Okay. So, and it it turned out to be really interesting. Like, they know a ton of stuff about technology yep. and the interface of, between law and technology. Yeah, and, they've and raised issues. all sorts of interesting questions in yeah. their study of law and technology. Issues we hadn't thought about. Yep. Who should the self-driving car run over? Absolutely. Yeah. I got a couple of suggestions. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. Yeah, I mean, like, major philosophical yeah. and legal questions, and I don't think anyone knows the yeah. answer. Um, well, probably Fred led. <laughs> Fred, Fred knows the answer. But they, what was clear that they had done a lot of forward thinking about yes. this stuff that other people hadn't have thought not. about a law at, at all, and one of the things that's kind of scary about it is, and the law doesn't seem to have thought about. Yeah, uh, so stay tuned. Important stuff, guys. Right, this is scary. Yeah, the robots are coming. Right. Iria and Nicholas. Welcome to Office Hours. The three of us, if I can speak for us, are delighted to be here. Well, we're so thrilled to have you. Yeah. Yeah, so so introduce yourselves to our listening community. We can go one by one. Just tell us your name, maybe where you're from, what brought you to William & Mary briefly, and what you do here at William & Mary. Fred, why don't we start with you? So I am Fred Lederer. I'm Chancellor Professor of Law and the Director of the Center for Legal and Court Technology, better known as CLCT, and previously the Courtroom 21 Project. And what we do is we are the world center for courtroom and related technology. But starting about a year ago, uh, with the assistance of grant funds from the Silicon Valley Community Foundation, funded by Cisco, uh, we have been spending a good deal of our time working on the legal issues coming out of artificial intelligence, the Internet of Things, data analytics, and the rest. And none of this would have been possible without my two colleagues here. Uh, hi, my name is Nicolas Vermez. I'm actually a visiting professor here uh, at William & Mary and at the CLCT. Uh, Fred had the, uh, the kindness of inviting me to spend my sabbatical uh, from, uh, uh, to spend my sabbatical here. I, as you can tell from my accent, I am actually from uh, Canada, from Quebec, and more specifically from the University of Montreal, where I have been teaching for about 10 years now, and I am in, uh, in charge of a... Uh, an institute called the Cyber Justice Laboratory with a colleague of mine, Karim Biniklef, and we basically are, I, I would say I am uh, Fred's equivalent in Canada if there is such a thing. <laughs> and I am Iria Dufrida. I am um, visiting assistant professor of law and the associate director for research at CLCT. 
and secretly I'm an alumna. I'm not going to say how many years ago I was a student here, but uh, enough to um, show the number of gray hair on my head. Anyway. Um, well, it's an audio stream, so don't even <laughs> <Right>. worry. <Yeah. laughs> um, I have, uh, um, prior to joining uh, William & Mary, I was a practitioner, I was a litigator in London, and uh, I have a PhD in European law, and so I bring to the table um, the European side of the, um, um, the various challenges and legal issues that we're looking at in the context of AI and the new technologies. It sounds like you're all part of an organization called CLCT, which is the Center for Legal and Court Technology. So tell us a little bit about CLCT. CLCT is an organization. We describe ourselves as an entrepreneurial public service project. And our goal is to improve the administration of justice through appropriate technology. Today, that's increasingly something far more than how do you try a case as well and efficiently as possible with technology is how we, and to some degree, our colleagues in Canada began, though they have a slightly different perspective on their mission statement. And today we're increasingly worried, I think that's the right word, fascinated as well, by all this information that we are immersed in, the Internet of Things, which allows us, as we've learned in the last few weeks, to uh, collect huge amounts of information and never know entirely where it has gone to. Mm. And then, of course, artificial intelligence. Uh, we have students writing papers now asking, for instance, whether we can replace judges and jurors. With we have questions with liability on, and the impact on criminal law of self-driving cars. And it goes on and on and on, of course. It keeps us employed for the minute. Yeah. here to talk to us about a couple of specific issues that you're working on. Could you just tell us the title of the class that you teach and what it focuses on? So the, the class is titled Artificial Intelligence, Emerging Technologies and Their Effects on the Legal Landscape. Our goal was to basically use every letter of the alphabet <laughs> at least once. But uh, no, uh, joking aside, our, our goal when we constructed, when we built this class was really to look into, uh, as we mentioned, artificial intelligence, uh, as well as blockchain, as well as the Internet of Things, and the relationships with all of these quote-unquote new technologies, which are actually not new at all. Exactly. So we're talking about uh, criminal law and uh, how artificial intelligence is going to impact uh, self-driving cars, for example, or what happens if a, a robot kills somebody. Uh, that actually happened in Japan a few years back, where a, a robot in a manufacturing chain just shoved an employee <laughs> of the manufacturing plant that was in its way. Now, obviously, the robot did not ha uh, have any malicious intent. Sure. He was so just removing an yeah, obstacle. Have you, have you not seen any movies? Yeah. How can well, you say well, that? Yeah, so it, can you say that somebody is criminally liable, liable. for the death of this individual? Uh-oh. So going from criminal law to uh, liability for self-driving cars, for medic medical malpractice, if you're using technology, if you're using bots to operate on somebody, if mm. you're uh, doing what is more and more common. You have uh -oh. uh, long-distance uh, um, surgery where the, the doctor will be uh, here in Williamsburg, but the patient yeah. will be in Chicago. 
and basically whatever. Oh, I'm he's, not comfortable with that. Whatever he's doing on his machine here on his computer here is reproduced right. by a robot in the hospital. Now you're saying you're not good with that, but if there are no yeah. uh, uh, doctors within a hundred miles of where you're situated, that's true. You'd rather be operated on by a robot and have a chance to live than yeah. operated you on by what? no one and dying. You make a, a very yeah. good point. Clear I was just out. thinking, like, if I need to get a mole removed, I kind of want that somebody to see where that is, so they don't remove well, they, something else. They do. They're just seeing it through a camera. But yeah. that's that's the question. What happens if the camera fails? What happens if the technology fails? Now, who is to blame? Is it the doctor that it was operating? Is is it whoever built the machine? Is it whoever yeah. is uh, uh, has uh, was operating the machine on the other end? So there are a lot, or who installed it, who programmed it. There are a lot of uh, possibilities there. And then we move on to other topics like privacy, which we uh, uh, mentioned, obviously a, a big uh, issue, privacy and security. Mm -hmm. And uh, last uh, but not least of the topics we haven't covered yet, um, intellectual property. Who owns copyright in AI that is evolving, and who owns copyright in what AI is creating? So it's all of these issues that are going to completely change the legal landscape for the next five to ten years, and just trying to uh, uh, brainstorm with the students and wow. with each other on how this is actually going to affect our practice and affect wow. the, the world we live in. And I think another um, interesting element of how we are designing and um, delivering the course is that we're making a positive effort to, to look at actual developments in the law. So for instance, uh, when we looked at the issue of liability, uh, both Fred and Nicholas have mentioned, in the context of the Internet of Things, we have looked at actual agreements that some of these IoT providers are expecting their customers to sign on to. And um, we were quite astounded by the amount of disclaimers that some of these agreements contain. Um, so uh, I'd love to know, an do, you, do you have one off the top of your head that you could tell us? I do, but I do not want to oh. name a particular manufacturer, but it was an IoT device um, uh, monitoring, it's a, a, a smoke alarm. Um, okay that is connected though to the internet and is a, is, a, is a smart smoke device. It could be a smart anything else. I see. And an IoT, is that the? What is yes, it? it's, it's an internet acronym. Internet of Things. Okay, Internet of Things. Yes, sorry, we. Oh boy. No, that's in okay. In our world. Yes, 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 speech. yes. And, and You're idea, speaking to a true amateur, so. And, and the idea behind the Internet of Things is relatively simple. It's the idea that devices are connected and interact using the internet and it's not just people it's got not basically it. sending emails but it's machines connected to the internet to gather information got it to make them work okay. so for for example if you're talking about your, your your smartphone when you're ordering something online then technically that's you're talking about internet of things or if you set your alarm your uh, home alarm using your your your, uh, your smart device mm -hmm then that's technically or an your, element of the Your, your freezer calls Amazon to get some new orange juice or something. Exactly. Okay. All right, but Aria, you were talking, <laughs> yeah, giving us an example of the, the yes, smoke, and, and, smoke and detector gone rogue. Yeah, yeah, well, a, a smoke detector that for whatever reason fails to detect smoke. And um, the disclaimers in um, this particular device that we looked at are such that no liability appears um, to be incurred Touch. by the manufacturer. Now, because while your normal smoke detector has only one function, so if it, there's an entire body of case law across the world about liability of smoke detectors that, that do not function, a smart smoke detector has an element of software. 
So what the manufacturer is doing is disclaiming liability for malfunctioning of the software. Mm. But mm. if that malfunctioning implies the smoke detecting function not to operate, then where are we? Right. So what we are trying to test with the students in class is not simply what the legal issues are, but actually how the industry is trying to approach them. We have asked questions about what's the impact of self-driving cars, not only on the usual issues, but for instance on uh, the question of can a police officer stop a fully autonomous mm. self-driving car under the Fourth Amendment? to which is a very good argument, the answer is no. But the reason for that is because you have to take into account all the other technologies. And as it happens, if we have made a discovery and we think we have in human terms, it turns out that most people who are working in this field are emphasizing one area of technology. Um, as my colleagues here would call it, uh, we are dealing with ecosystems, a interrelationship. So if you think about a self-driving car, not as it is in the next five years, but maybe 30 years from now, it not only is connected to everything else, it is specifically connected to computers that have access to data from all over the world. Mm. And as a consequence, the cop in the probably self-driving police sedan doesn't need to learn anything, it already knows everything. Mm. Hmm which could potentially mean that a huge percentage of police stops and all the things they produce vanish from our roads. So that you're saying the police officer could see the self-driving car doing something untoward, but just pull up a computer, get the ownership information and send a citation without ever having to actually stop. Well, it. but the question is citation. The car will know, the police officer will know who owns it, who operates it, what the parameters are, why it is malfunctioning. Yeah. And if there is a citation, it will probably go to a computer, another AI, somewhere else. Right. And absent an emergency need to stop the vehicle for help, the odds are very, very good there will no longer be constitutional justification to search the car. Great. Wow. Uh-oh, Professor Bellin. What's going to happen fine. to your job? I'll, I'll just I'll just talk about that. All I got, I'm not I'm not the police officer. The police officers need to worry about that scenario. I don't know. It sounds like they might be coming for you too. I know other things. Evidence is evidence. <laughs> is there still evidence law in this world? Well, we're assuming that. Um, actually, that turns out to be a painful question because <laughs> if you apply the same theory, are we going to keep the evidence rules if, in fact, we are going to have decisions either made by AIs mm -hmm. or assisted by AIs? Okay. And then, as a recent Washington Post story came out last week, and one of our students are also writing on that subject, um, are we going to demand the AI explain how it reached its decision? The hearsay rule may be in great trouble. All right. Well, what, Which what about, we mean we're both in trouble. What about podcast hosting? Yeah. Can you get an <laughs> AI safe. to do that? <laughs> it is clear that there's nothing yeah. technologically could exp could replace the two of right. you. Well, Most it of... turns out I'm already a robot, so. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it did, uh, while you were talking before, I mean, and Fred's last point uh, makes me think that a lot of the answers, the legal answers to these, depend on a really nuanced appreciation of the technology itself. And that, that's something that you're not going to get in a standard doctrinal legal course and that you guys can offer because there's no way to answer these questions. Is the car liable or you know, the owner or you know, is the, the smoke detector, company, right? right, all this stuff uh, without really understanding the technology itself. And I think courts struggle with that because 
the, the lawyers are not experts in the underlying technology. That's true, and it also has another complication. We've spent two weeks on the course discussing the way that all of this technology will change, probably beyond recognition, the practice of law. Mm. And how, you know, students are going to have to follow what's actually happening lest they discover that they are bluntly unemployed. A chill just set over our listeners. <laughs> more worryingly unemployable. And this is a fairly fascinating and, if you want, depressing topic. Uh, if you look at the amount of legal information that is currently available online, and then you add to it uh, startup companies like Ross, which will do legal research and say that their future is to basically be your remote artificial intelligence lawyer. Mm -hmm. This is a Ross, Ross Dress for Less, is that his name? Is? <laughs> That's a, a different Ross. They also sell used clothes, the, the, so, and, so and along happily, the way you get everything. Happily, this Ross doesn't dress at all. <laughs> Interesting. So th this Ross is actually a, 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 a robot in the, the purest sense of the word. Related so, to Watson, you may have heard yeah, of yeah, so Watson. Yeah, Watson I know, it's, Jeopardy. It's, sure. yeah, it, it's a spin Sherlock on, on uh, IBM's Watson. And what this robot does, basically, you feed it a legal question and it uh -huh. gives you the precedent and it gives you the information wow. and it answers your question. So it basically okay. does in about 15 minutes what a junior lawyer would be paid and how, to do. And how do you access it? Is it a service you pay for, or how? Yeah, do it's, you a, it's a it's a paid service. So would you go online, you'd like Ross.com, or how do you? Is it is it accessible to the masses yet? Or yes, yes, it is. I, obviously, again, you have to sign up for an account. Yeah, but right. technically, and you have different systems like that. So you have a, a do not pay, which is another system. That was created to basically I don't like give, that title. give you, people advice on how to get out of paying their for their parking tickets. That's how it's oh, started. I do it's like that title. Do you want to talk about the robot lawyer? Uh, um, uh, yeah, well, but robot lawyer is uh, basically a, a spinoff of that. So an, an 18-year-old, uh, uh, I say kid because I'm old enough now to say that sure. 18 is a kid, uh, an 18-year-old kid in the UK that basically was tired of paying for his parking tickets. So he developed an algorithm that goes to find the best uh, arguments that have been used over the years to get out of a, a parking ticket. And he created this little online app that was actually free and wow. that people could just go on and, and he would basically give them legal advice, which isn't legal advice uh, uh, because otherwise it would be legal practice of law. Right. But basically would tell them, well, these are the arguments that are usually used by people in court who win their, uh, uh, their cases. And so would basically just suggest what could be possible arguments. And that <laughs> app uh, got uh, uh, huge recognition in the UK, and he is now, uh, uh, and it's now being used here in the US and wow. also in many fields. So the Cyber Justice just, Lab gave him an award a few weeks ago. Both of us were in Canada watching. Oh, He's cool. now an undergrad at Stanford, and apparently this app is being used throughout the United States. So imagine you're uh -oh. a small town lawyer. Yeah. And ask yourself, what types of things do you charge for? And then how much of that will be necessary in 10 years? And we haven't even reached any of the specialist areas. Somebody's got to stop this kid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, luckily they send him to Stanford. Maybe he'll yeah. become a lawyer, and then he'll, uh, he'll see the, the He'll but, see the light. Yeah. Yeah. But the main issue I see with these things, it's great for now. It's, I mean, for, for people, and a lot of law firms are signing up to Ross and other types of uh, similar systems saying, well, you know, my client expects faster service and uh -oh. he or she expects the service to be uh, uh, cheaper. 
So it's great for the law firms to say, well, instead of paying a junior uh, attorney for a sure. week to do the work, I can just give it to this uh, system. And then obviously I'm going to proof uh, check it afterwards. So make oh, sure that everything works like out. Quality control check there's there's quality end. control done by the senior lawyer. Mm -hmm. The problem is how does a senior lawyer become a senior lawyer? Right. By doing the grunt work of looking up references and reading yeah. case law yeah. and assembling and then preparing memo memorandums. So basically that my fear is that if we, uh, uh, we basically uh, uh, rely too much on artificial intelligence right now within the legal profession, we won't have any experts in 10 years. Right. Well, and the interesting thing, so you know, in a way it's depressing uh, because we're focused on law, my sense is that we could have this conversation about almost every profession, and that's a, this is just a change that's coming to society Absolutely. generally. And, and we might, lawyers might be in the be one of the better positions because there is this kind of expertise and, and interpersonal, and you know, yeah, to go to court and things. You can't send Ross to court yet, yeah. Fred's going to say. Yes, they already sent for Ross yeah, to court, yeah, right. I'm, I'm skeptical, partly because of his dress Sure, problems. problem, yeah. yeah. Right, so, yeah. But if I may, uh, uh, in the context of, for instance, um, a smart contract, uh, these are contracts that are built on a blockchain technology, mm -hmm. which or encompasses dispute resolution yeah. mechanisms. Like right. Bitcoin is an example, uh, I think. Bitcoin oh, is right. one, but you can simply have an agreement whereby you and I um, enter into a swap agreement for hedging uh, currencies. And if I fail to do something by a certain date, automatically the damages that we've yeah. already agreed will be paid to you without us having to even exchange um, a, a minute of yeah. thought. Wow. We saw this with, so in our interview about Bitcoin, one of the things that was interesting there was that Bitcoin was not really getting rid of the lawyers, it was getting rid of the law. So there was no law necessary to resolve your dispute. It was baked in that this community would decide, did you own the Bitcoin or not? And there'd be no place to go to court about it at all. So, so to now your point, it's a, it's, a, it's a bigger change than just yes. what's happening to lawyers. And this makes sense in some contexts. So there are examples where you can codify if this, then yeah. that, right. and if that, then this other. Obviously, there are other realities that are much harder to codify. And yesterday, we were looking in class at, at clauses that we as lawyers put in agreements to allow us to have flexibility reasonableness yeah, yeah. Um, you know it needs to be done duly done right. you know um, or as soon as practical it's like job security it, for lawyers so it, it, we need to consult a human Ross doesn't know what reasonable is yet. well right. not, not yet perhaps <laughs> it, it may know what the case law says reasonable is in a yeah, particular district right. or what in an industry um, that standard is, is seems to be so I don't think lawyers are likely to or, or dis dispute resolution lawyers are likely to disappear overnight sure. but the changes are certainly yeah going and so to like affect. you said to adapt to the change is the key it's not so much that you will just be sitting on your couch playing Halo for the rest of your life, you need to adapt to the change and find a new role that will also be a legal role. And, and like your point about the law firm using Ross, so kind of knowing about the technology and saying, oh, well, this is some technology that we embrace and we'll kind of, and I know they use this for, so like electronic discovery, you know, in a way you say, oh, well, that's displacing lawyers, but that, that was just tedious, mind-numbing work. It's sure. really not a human sure. kind of work. And so if instead the human can plan and, and kind of supervise the algorithm that finds the piece of document in the million documents, that's probably a preferable system. And also, I mean, this was something that came up in a different class where we were talking about the both philosophical and legal implications for programming those cars to make 
ethical decisions mm -hmm. ahead of time. So we have to, as a society, figure out, or at least in the programming world, have to figure out, um, like, is a self-driving car going to break for a pedestrian when that break might cause injury to their passengers? What's the trade-off? And somehow we have to figure out how to create a calculus for it. And to what extent do we take economic consequences in yeah. to that decision? Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a great example. Can you flesh that out? If the insurance companies have a significant voice in the legislation, yeah. perhaps the question will be, who will cause the smallest amount of damage? No, the financial damage. And right. Yes, and forgive me, we don't program the car. This is the Internet of Things. The central system oh, okay. knows everything, including all the backgrounds of each of the individuals like and their that. lifetime earnings projections, folks. I don't like that at all. All right. I don't it's amazing that. what you get when you start adding all the technologies to wow. each other. Am I already adding my personal information without knowing it to that Internet of Things? You are. Oh, no. Nicholas referenced this earlier. I, I think I saw something about this. Oh, yeah. with like the, it was scary, like that Google is collecting kind of every place you've been and all oh, these boy. things. I actually checked it last night and uh, uh, realized the searches that I made in 2008 <gasps> were saved. Yeah. Oh, now, dear. They're all cute dogs' videos. Sure, yeah, of <laughs> so course. You say, right? Of course. Right. <laughs> Not it much is, has changed. It is a, like one of the things that was surprising about the latest revelations to me, and I guess this is just a function of how cheap storage has become, mm. that you think like if like Google keeping track of this stuff for years for everyone, it seems like so much information and yet it must be cheap enough that, that it's worth doing. Well, there is that and there's also the fact that um, I remember when I was uh, teaching e-commerce back in Montreal a few years ago, one of my students was actually an employee at Yahoo and I was explaining that under Quebec privacy laws you have to uh, destroy information when it's no longer uh, relevant or when it's no, no longer needed for the purpose for which it was collected. And she said, I don't know that my company can do that. And I, I don't know that we actually know where all this inf information uh -huh. is. Now, I should say she wasn't a higher up, so she didn't have all the information, obviously, in the company. She was in sales. But, and that's true of most of these companies that they basically gather all this information and they don't necessarily know where that information is. They don't necessarily yeah. know how much they have. And up till the last couple of months really mm -hmm. went with the advent of uh, uh, new developments in uh, machine learning, which is a subcategory of AI, they really didn't have any way of using this data. Hmm and of structuring it and of exploiting it in a way that now we can say, okay, well, the passenger in that car, for example, as Fred says, uh, uh, considering their, their Google search history and <laughs> how many friends they have on Facebook, and yeah. they are a valuable member of society or a more valuable member of society than the person crossing the street right now who Looking wow. at their Facebook, uh, on their, their uh, Google search, well, he's only looking at porn all day. So really, how So much get that perv out of here. That's it. <laughs> yeah, but it's yeah. interesting that, that kind of the, the bite of Nicholas's example is using kind of questionable valuation techniques, right? right? So using Facebook friends as opposed to, whereas your example, Proxies Michaela, yeah. a child versus an adult, we might be more comfortable. And so it just speaks to what we were saying all along, which is humans need to make a decision somewhere in this process, and that's a hard decision. How, how do we decide? Uh, who, who bears the brunt of a collision that's inevitable. I think the philosophers have for a long time struggled with the dilemma of yeah. sure. you know, it's, it's 
sometimes is uh, expressed in the form of uh, there are you know, three people on a train. Yeah, right. So right. right. There's right. a lot of criminal right. law. Exactly. Like but, but the ethical dilemma is, is, is something that um, I like to think humanity has been struggling with. What um, these technologies and the ecosystem that is coming out is forcing us to do is almost having to give an answer. We have the fortune on one hand, the, right. the, the challenge of the other to code and, and program. Yeah. Um, I remember listening to an interview um, of a senior engineer at Watson who said, I, as an engineer, do not want to make the call. It's not for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I am not comfortable in mm-hmm. doing this. This is the call for the legislator. Yeah, it seems Law like a law, maker. right? Or like Fred's saying, it's a, but we would worry society. because sure. there'd be a lot of lobbying and things, but, but that's where the hardest decisions are supposed to be made. And so if this is all centralized, right, isn't there a risk of weaponizing it's time it? time like, for the aquarium. Uh, well, there is the aquarium. I was actually going to go with... what's the aquarium? Uh, so, uh, Some months ago, uh, the papers and the Internet were quite thrilled to announce that a major U.S. casino had been hacked. The question was, how did it get hacked? Right. Someone had an aquarium that had a temperature sensor mm. that was tied to the internet in the aquarium so they got right okay so they got the outside hacker got into the interior casino network by going through the therm the thermometer that was in the aquarium wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute what so uh, there's an aquarium inside of the casino. There's an aquarium in a casino. I'm with start, you. Start and they have a thermometer. The right there. They have a First thermo- of all, what laps of judgment? They have a thermostat in the aquarium. It's on the internet, which so you can monitor, you can monitor the thermometer just like you can go look at what's happening in your house. Huh. Hacker gets into the thermometer and from there into the internal network which was otherwise protected. Interesting, you know, and I'm not going to ask you to go into this, but I am curious about that step in between of getting into the thermometer and then getting into the whole network. We just happen to have a cybersecurity expert here. Nicholas? Basically, the thermometer is part of the network of the casino. But why can't all the thermometer do is like raise the temperature? Why can't it just stop? Yeah, why can't it just be a use like a normal thermometer? But that's for coins to my account. That's the point. Who put that in the thermometer feature? The point being, well, it's not. No, the the thermometer feature is not that it can give you money. The thermometer is hooked on the same network as everything else. Yeah. And therefore, since the thermometer was not protected because nobody actually thought that somebody would yeah, use right. a, a thermometer to hack a system, right. once you're in the thermometer, you're in the network. Oh, you could change what the thermometer so does. So it's basically just saying through the thermometer. It's basically saying the thermometer is a window on the 18th floor of a building. Yeah. Uh-huh. Nobody thinks that anybody's going to get through the 18th, 18th yeah, floor until somebody builds does. a ladder that's 18 feet, uh, the 18th <gasps> floor tall, and then somebody just gets in that window. And once you're in the building, you're in the building. Right. Yeah. And you can go back to the second floor, the first, third floor or whatnot. And, and an even a, a worse example, because yeah, uh, is, let's go there. Yeah, <laughs> about a year ago now, uh, uh, there was the WannaCry uh, outbreak. Now, WannaCry was a piece of ransomware. So uh-huh. it's basically a computer virus, right? Rather, right. it's similar to a computer virus. It goes into your system and it locks you out. Uh-huh. And in order to have access to your own information again, mm-hmm you have to pay a ransom. Mm-hmm. In this case, it was done in Bitcoin. 
And so you basically had to send Bitcoin to uh, uh, the person who sent, uh, uh, who the infected your computer, your computer system. Now, if it happens to a small company, that just means you're locked out of your computer. In the UK, it happened to the whole health system. So the whole health system in the UK was completely paralyzed. Yeah. Now that d doesn't just mean that uh, I can't get into patient records. That means some machines that are connected to the oh, internet are no longer accessible. So you're not getting your blood transfusion because of the ransomware. So obviously, uh, Her Majesty's healthcare system, I believe. It's National uh, NHS. NHS. National Health. Uh, uh, so they basically uh, had to pay very quickly. They didn't have a choice because people's lives are depending on it. And so that's, that's the danger with too much, uh, uh, with connecting too many things to the internet of things or to the internet in general, that basically if you don't isolate different elements and protect them properly, mm -hmm. if everything is connected, you just have to find one flaw. So one of our, uh, we should add, uh, as I think we already have, that our students all have to write papers on topics that relate to all this. So one of our students wrote a particularly interesting first draft talking about the toys that we buy for our children, including the ones that are trained to have conversations with us. Oh now the traditional, can we use that word for something that's a year old? The traditional concern has been privacy mm -hmm. because the remote computers are recording everything and, and the rest, and there's always kidnap options and the rest. But these usually what, work. What do you mean kidnap options? Don't just glaze over they, that. What happens is someone tacks into the system and learns the necessary family information, finds child what? out on the playground, says, oh, Jimmy, your mommy said you have to come with me. Your aunt so-and-so <gasps> is and the rest. But look at it from a different version. These things work on the Wi-Fi networks. Oh, brother. So we don't need a thermometer in an aquarium. We have a teddy bear. Yeah. Okay, I am so freaked out right now. Just buy the regular teddy bear. You don't need to get the I don't, one. Yeah, <laughs> clearly. A precursor of that situation, a few years ago, uh, it, there was a lot of uh, media coverage on the fact that Basically, your your nanny cams or your baby cams, mm -hmm. the camera you put in your uh, uh, next to your child's crib. Sure. And a gentleman was taking care of his baby, and then he noticed that the camera was moving. Now he was oh, taking okay. care of the kid. I'm actually having heart palpitations <laughs> at the and, moment. And basically, the problem is that camera is connected to the internet, uh -huh. and he did not protect it. So just doing a quick Google search, I can access a, net, a, a list of all of the cameras, all of the baby cameras that are connected to the internet, and I can just pick one. What? And I can control it. So, so you need some skill to hack into it or no? You, not you, much. Not much. Honestly, okay. you can just find a, a website that will explain how to do it. Huh. And Who's can, written that website? Who's who's that weirdo? And, well, the, that's another that's story. Actually that's actually a student at the CLCC <laughs> did that No, that one I will disagree with. <laughs> but joking aside, that, that is a serious issue because people did not do not know that once they're connected to the internet, they're connected to happen. all of these They're horrible monsters. Okay, this is terrible. Tell me some good news. What's good about this? Well, what's good about this is there's actually a way to make things safer. There's actually, so technology can be the, the problem, but it can also be the remedy. Now, artificial intelligence can actually be used to uh, uh, police the network. 
you can have one uh, uh, computer tech looking at the system and checking the firewalls uh, and right. noticing oh somebody somebody actually passed through the firewall and managed to get into the system. Now that takes usually around uh, average, I believe, is about eleven months to discover that there has been a breach. Okay. Uh, somewhere around there, eight to eleven, I believe. Using AI, you can bring that down to a few minutes. Yeah because the AI is actually policing the system and noticing a, a slight, slight change in habits mm -hmm. and very quickly can probably help identify who did it on top of it. You, you, know, what, you know what's so interesting, uh, looking at it from, you know, and Fred shares the perspective I have uh, as a criminal procedure scholar, is that typically the kind of privacy concern is privacy uh, against the government, so protecting your information from government intrusion, and that's what the Fourth Amendment uh, is supposed to help with. Uh, but uh, almost all of the concerns that we're talking about now are private companies gathering your data and then some other private actor either accessing it or, or you know, hacking into. And it's interesting to kind of reorient uh, these concerns uh, instead of being as you know, worried about the government exclusively uh, to worry about Google or Amazon uh, accessing your data. And that's actually something uh, Iria and I realized <laughs> teaching the, the, the AI and privacy class is that uh, that is probably one of the main differences in privacy law between the U.S. and Canada and Europe. Mm, fascinating. Because in Canada and Europe, we have laws for government uh, 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 privacy issues, but we have mostly laws for the private sector. Wow. So when, when I prepared the class on law and artificial intelligence, as somebody from Canada, I developed it as let's protect ourselves from these corporations. And we were shocked to see that the students actually did not react the way we thought they would, or rather the way students in the UK, in Belgium, in France, or in Quebec would react, because your your uh, uh, default, so your, your yeah your default is well privacy is privacy from the state, whereas right. from us it's privacy from and private corporations. parties, corporations who want to use our data. Yeah, so like an example, if you said like the law kind of catching up, where our law was dealing with the past problem, and now there's a new problem that we're not really ready for. Yeah. That's awesome, you guys. Um, I'm terrified, but uh, so I think it's important we have a moment of levity. Uh, let's oh. talk about our game. So the game is, you have to tell us, are, are these things that are going on at CLCT or not? Surveilling the law school. Are you surveilling the law school? We are not. <laughs> CLCT <laughs> is not surveilling the law school. Is I Dean can... Douglas trying to get you to do it, though? <laughs> Why not? I have not yeah. had many discussions with Dean Douglas. I'll let Fred answer that one. Not to the best of our knowledge. <laughs> Right. Classic. Are, are you working on any technology that will help me to find my remote control? You Where's Bell need <laughs> remote control? That's so old fashioned. It's actually true. I always that already lose. exists. Is that <laughs> it's so yeah. old. I always lose my phone. I'm every couple of minutes. Oh, that's I'm like, where'd, my, where'd my phone yeah. go? Right. Uh, we we can discuss that with you and okay. tell you how to avoid that problem. Okay. Well, thanks so much for coming on. You guys, this was awesome. Yes. Thank you very Both much. Scary and informative. Scary and informative. And, um, and we'll see you in the robot apocalypse. So that's our podcast with Fred, Nicholas, and Iria. That's right. What we tell you guys? Spooky stuff. Yeah. And, and who would have thought that the strangest accent among the crew would be Professor Fred Lederer from <laughs> Brooklyn? <laughs> uh, God bless Fred Led. You know, I mean, is there a nicer human being out there? I, yeah. I, I love Fred. 
I think it's great when he says that what happened in taught class. Yeah, for all of you listening, that was tort class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a, it's a very old school, refined Brooklyn way of speaking. And it only comes out, you know, once in a while. He's just a couple of words. <laughs> just a couple of words here and That's there. If it's his whole personality, it's, it's just a delight to be around him. And it was fun to have him in the podcast. And boy, are they working on interesting things. Oh my gosh, the three of them, the brain trust in here. I am very concerned. Right. Basically, the Matrix is coming. It's the Matrix. And um, my blood pressure is really through the roof They're at like, the moment. They're like, oh, you know, be aware. There will be a different role or lesser role for lawyers. Yeah. And I'm thinking, and also humans. Exactly. Yeah. We're, we're not needed anymore. Yeah, I don't care about my job. I'm worried about, like, people spying on me and then knowing how to murder my child like that's what i'm worried about right it's like the least of your concerns is that you're not going to do discovery who cares yeah i'm looking forward to (laughs) retirement anyway if you if you want to listen next week i'll be in a cave in a hole somewhere (laughs) so it'll just be professor bellin don't hear from us again they got us it's the robots they got us but hopefully you will we'll see you soon (laughs) 